0: The New Statesman. Hi, I'm Anoush. I'm Harry. And on today's episode of the New Statesman podcast, we discuss Jeremy Hunt junking the entire mini budget, and you ask us: Can the Tories really get away with switching leader again without calling for an election? So we've literally run down to the studio, just as Jeremy Hunt, the new chancellor, has basically junked the entire mini budget, apart from reversing the national insurance tax rise and the stamp duty cut. So there's also this bombshell U-turn that the energy bill fix will only stay in place until April, when it will be reviewed and made cheaper and more targeted. So that's basically everything, really. The basic rate of income tax both Liz Truss and Rishi Sunak have pledged to cut that, if on different timetables, that's been cancelled completely. So actually now Liz Truss is, is heading a government that is cutting less than Rishi Sunak wanted to, who was, you know, her opponent in the leadership campaign famously, and that was their dividing line. So, Harry, thanks for coming on. Let's talk a little bit about what Jeremy Hunt's doing, first of all, before we get into Liz Truss's future. So, what do you reckon to his appointment, first of all, and the sacking of Kwateng?
1: Well, it's amazing that he was appointed, obviously, because he only won 13 MPs in the leadership contest. And someone messaged me saying, Hunt on Friday, you know, can they save Truss? And I was sort of scornful. Um, and I still don't think he can save Truss, but he's certainly saving himself. I mean, he's doing very well. And he's now very much in the conversation of caretaker PM. It was an interesting choice by Truss. I thought, in some ways, she would have chosen to double down and pick someone like Kemi Badenoch mm. and say, not only is income tax going to 19p, it's now going to 15p. <laughs> but, you know, if I'm going to go down, I'm going to go down swinging. But instead, she, she picked Hump. But I really think that was the, the death knell of her government at that point. I think the story's moved on. I mean, it's not going to surprise anyone that I'm saying Liz Truss is, is done. Yeah. The Times is openly running pieces on who will succeed her.
0: Well, let's talk a little bit about that because you wrote a piece actually before the appointment of Jeremy Hunt talking about how there was a pile of letters going into the 1922 committee, which is, as we can remember from the (laughs) Boris Johnson collapse, the committee of backbenchers who decide how to get rid of a leader. How could it happen? Because doesn't she have to stay in place for a year?
1: No. Mm -hmm. Short answer. There are no rules. The rules are just whatever the 1922 decide. And as as people would always emphasise to me during the Johnson saga... When a majority of Tory MPs want something to happen, it will happen.
0: Okay. where well, there's a will, there's a way, basically. Yeah,
1: absolutely. And as I say, someone well-sourced tells me that the, there was already a pile of letters and I said, is the pile a tower? <laughs> and they said, no, not yet, but, you know, sh- it, it could very well be soon. And at that time, we were saying, you know, by December, but I think it'd be amazing if, if there wasn't clamour this week or next to, to get rid of her. But can I just quickly go back to Hunt? There's two things I think we should emphasise about his statement today and why he made it. One is... The OBR forecast is still being finalized. This is a point Torsten Bell at the Resolution Foundation made. The forecast is still being finalized. So by acting now, he can hopefully, the government hopes, put pressure on the markets, or rather reassure them and put pressure on yields to come down, which would reduce the government's borrowing cost. And that will affect the OBR's forecast. Mm -hmm. And therefore, the OBR will be less demanding of the, the fiscal hole that needs filling. So by acting now and reducing government borrowing costs, he can actually make his his situation better ahead of the OBR forecast. The other thing is the LDI pension saga where you had lots of pension funds borrowing more money than they should have been borrowing relative to their position for their security. Just like in the financial crisis, as Mervyn King was explaining to me in last week's New Statesman. Um, Yeah,
0: yeah, which everyone should read.
1: Absolutely. The LDI problem seemed like it had been solved by the government jumping into the bond markets. But as yields continue to rise again, the pension funds were at risk. And there was one specifically Ed Conway of Sky Reports today that is in real jeopardy or was in real jeopardy of of going bust and causing a knockout sort of sequence of events. And so Hunt acted today to prevent those yields continuing to rise and that pension risk continuing to build.
0: Right, okay. So
1: there's two sort of underlying mm. reasons as to why this statement happened now.
0: And do we have any idea of how the markets are responding to this intervention by Hunt today?
1: So the yields started falling this morning from about 4.8% to 4.5%. And then since the statement, they've now fallen down to 44 So, you know, still pretty high, still pretty elevated, but they're going in the right direction and they're sort of approaching the level that they were at before the recent rise last week where they started spiraling back up to 5%. And I think that's when people get into jeopardy. The pension funds get into jeopardy. So it's it's an extraordinary situation. But that's that's the underlying reason why Hunt acted today.
0: That's really interesting. And I think while Jeremy Hunt seems to have definitely had an impact on marginally reassuring the markets that this mini budget is going to be reversed pretty much in total. And like you say, he's gone early on it. He hasn't waited for that Halloween fiscal statement to do this in the hope that the OBR and its sums will be a little bit more flattering or slightly less sort of terminal for the government come that date. I do think that there is still a problem here politically for Tories who want to replace Liz Truss. First of all, I think Hunt is being written up as this sort of Tory saviour, caretaker prime minister i think the ceo to her chairman or chairwoman but um i don't buy it i mean brexiteers don't really trust him obviously he's a remainer cameroon boris johnson loyalists remember him man- maneuvering against johnson pretty early in that leadership campaign over summer I remember nadine doris publicly criticized his pandemic preparation while he was health secretary and he's been warning his party of the risks of Neglecting the sort of southern heartlands because he's a Surrey MP and I think there's a bit of suspicion among Red Wall MPs about that and the sort of ditching of levelling up if it still exists, if it ever existed. <laughs> so I do think that even if he is sort of cleaning up the economic mess, politically he's not necessarily the saviour and that brings us to the ultimate question which is, Who would they replace Liz Truss with? And it's quite similar to what we were talking about over the Boris Johnson era of his scandals. The rebels, or in this case, pretty much everyone in the Conservative Party, weren't uniting behind one candidate, which is pretty much why they've ended up in this mess in the first place with Liz Truss as a sort of uncharismatic, electorally suicidal leader.
1: Yeah, completely. But I think the big difference now is, as I always remember a Tory MP saying to me in April, you know, many of us want to get rid of Boris but the feeling is fuck can you imagine how bad it would be if Liz Truss took over (laughs) and there was obviously many reasons why you might want to stick with Boris because of his legacy a a victory but there's no reason to stick with Liz Truss and and they all know that so I Mm. think there will be a contest soon I think you're right Jeremy Hunt isn't going to win it but I do think he's resuscitated his career yeah and he would figure prominently in any future cabinet probably quite possibly as chancellor yeah. if a Penny Morden or a Rishi Sunak took over. And I think they're the most likely candidates. There's the Ben Wallace question. People still don't really understand why he didn't run in the summer, but I think the biggest issue for him is he doesn't doesn't actually have a parliamentary base. While he's very popular with members, and there's good reason for that. He was, you know, a fairly unknown security minister until recently. It's only the war that's propelled him forward. Everyone always says, what does Ben Wallace want to do about the economy, the health and everything else? I don't think he knows. I think he wants to be NATO Secretary General. Mm. And I think it is early for Boris to come back, perhaps even for Boris himself, who, as we know, is motivated financially in these matters.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's probably a topic for a for another podcast, but that would be interesting to see whether or not money trumps power, probably mm-hmm. the former. But yeah, I remember speaking to a Tory MP, former cabinet colleague of Jeremy Hunt, who was saying, you know, he who wields the knife never wears the crown. So there is this reluctance, I think even still even in these circumstances for someone to come forward as the challenger. You kind of want to sort of bubble up organically as the person that everyone wants rather than be seen to be on manoeuvres.
1: I think that's true but it's also it isn't interesting to see how this is going to play out because does Mordent make a deal with Sunak? I mean that's what a lot of people are talking about you know does Rishi offer her foreign sex say and and then they combine because together they had 70% of the party backing them. I, I think Rishi is definitely the most likely successor at this point but, in the meantime, I don't think Hunt you know initially, my thinking was that Hunt might like zahawi join the rebels and tell trust to go. Yeah. I don't think he's going to do that. I think he's just going to be chance i mean he's he's got carte blanche to run the treasury as he likes, clearly, so I think he's just going to continue to run the the treasury, which at the moment is effectively the government, and wait for the party to act
0: mm. and what will be interesting also will be to see whether or not his remit goes beyond the Treasury because obviously. He's had a bit of a uh, epiphany since being health secretary He's, he, in his period as chair of the Health Select Committee about the, how deep the cuts were, especially in social care. He, To me, he called them a silent killer. And obviously he hasn't refer, reversed that national insurance cut. And, and there's rumours that, you know, that, that the NHS budget will also be up for cutting. Will he change that? You know, will he try and reverse some of those, some of that austerity on the health service? Will his remit kind of spill into other areas? So that would be one to keep an eye on as well.
1: And he spoke out against the international aid cut. Yeah. But it's interesting you called them silent killers to you because we've talked about the data before showing the rise in avoidable mortality. Yeah. from the from austerity or rather the
0: excess deaths. Yeah, yeah, exactly.
1: and the way that they had really fallen avoidable mortality which is this trackable statistic, you know, fell in the 2000s and then stopped falling in the 2010s. So relative to trend there were a lot of people that died that, that maybe you know, shouldn't have, couldn't have under a different system. But just to go back to trust quickly, I think it is impossible for her to survive partly because every single public appearance she makes is a disaster. And it will be bad today when she speaks in front of the comments. I mean, it's been bad when the party has nominally been hers. You know, when we see her later, it will be very clear that it's not. And I can't imagine she's going to rise to the occasion. So I think, you know, on Friday when she did her press conference, it was a disaster. And it was always clear, I think, from the very first day she spoke outside number 10 and had nothing to say that, public appearances were going to be a net negative. Mm. And this is why I don't think trust can survive, because there's nothing she can do, given her skill set to revive the situation. What do you think?
0: Well, yeah, I mean, I never really bought it. Do you remember when she did that first leadership debate and Mm -hmm. it wasn't very good? And everyone said, oh, she's quite wooden. You know, the right of the party feel very nervous about this because they'd kind of put her in, in that position. And then everyone said that she's, well, the commentariat concluded that she'd improved vastly uh, in the second debate. I didn't really buy that. The only reason she came across better was because Rishi Sunak was cutting across her, interrupting her and was being accused of mansplaining, which, you know, was probably fair. But I don't think her performance was particularly improved. And I think this has always been her problem. She doesn't seem particularly good at thinking on her feet. You could see it when those protesters (laughs) interrupted <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> we know your thoughts on Liz Trout <laughs> from your last appearance on this podcast, Harry. Hopefully,
1: she won't be PM for longer so I can stop this, uh, this campaign. <laughs>
0: yeah.
1: But just to go back to that first debate, I just find it the most uh, incredible stat that 97% of the public said one of the other four were better than Liz Truss at that debate. Yeah. And they picked Truss. Yeah, I mean, I was going on about Kemi Badenoch in the summer, who would have been far too green to be PM. But I couldn't understand why the Tory right didn't switch to her, given how close that contest was, given that one was the foreign secretary and the other one was effectively unknown and was almost beating her in, in, the, in the leadership ballots. So I thought that's, that's a pretty terminal sign.
0: Hi, it's Anoush here. This is just a reminder that as a podcast listener, you have the option of subscribing to The New Statesman with a very special offer. You can subscribe for just a pound a week. That's 12 weeks for £12 if you go to newstatesman.com forward slash podcast offer. We'll be right back. From The New Statesman comes a new podcast, Audio Long Reads. The best of our reported features and essays read aloud. Featuring writing from our authors, including... Edward Dox on the death of Boris the Clown. When did the booing start? He was never exactly sure. A year inside GB News with Stuart McGurk.
1: One presenter told me that producers had taken to booking their own parents.
0: May Robson on why women's football is the more beautiful game. Like most of the England squad, the Euro 2022 captain, Leah Williamson, can't afford not to have a plan B. Ease into the weekend with our audio long reads published every Saturday morning. Just search audio long reads from the New Statesman wherever you get your podcasts. And now it's time for a section we like to call...
1: You Ask Us.
0: So our question today is from Phil. Thanks, Phil. He asks, can the Tories really get away with switching leader again without calling a general election? Yes. Good question. Yeah. I mean, I was also going to say yes. So now it's very boring for poor Phil and any other listeners who have stuck with us this far.
1: Well, the only person that that seems to think otherwise is Nadine Dorries because...
0: (laughs) She, she she bloody loves an election. Yeah.
1: Well, she, I think she sees it as a way of getting Boris in because, you know, Boris is an election winner. But of course they can. What are we going to do? Launch a coup?
0: In a way, I, I actually think that changing leader makes it less necessary to have an election because they aren't well if this new leader whoever comes in sticks to Jeremy Hunt's new plan for the economy which is very likely because this is the whole reason this has happened in the first place then they are executing an economic policy that is far more similar to what people voted for in the 2019 election than the kind of radical new direction that Liz Truss and Kwasi Kwarteng wanted to go in which didn't have a mandate at all, really. So in a way, if you're talking just in terms of legitimacy, I think there would be more of a legitimacy to follow this path without an election than there was for what Liz Truss was originally proposing.
1: I completely agree. It's also the budget that the Labour Party would essentially support. Mm -hmm. They might do some other things differently, but they they backed the national insurance cut. Ironically, they actually backed the income tax cut.
0: Yeah, they did. So now they are more of a tax cutting... (laughs)
1: Well, well, apart from
0: the windfall tax and the other tax. Right.
1: But I mean, the income tax thing, I think it's a good expose of of the Labour Party's fair weather tax policy. I don't think they should have backed the 19p income tax cut. You can't believe in a stronger state and then back that cut and they won't back it now. Yeah. So you're just playing politics. And I mean, I get it, but I'm not a fan. Stand up and say it should be 21p. Because it should be.
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it does expose the fickleness when it comes to some of these tax cuts. I mean, there are a lot of these things that they actually agree with, like reversing the national insurance rise as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and so this kind of u-turning from the government does expose Labour's hypocrisy on that. But I just don't think enough people are paying attention to that at the moment, which is something that we discussed on the last episode. There's no real political capital to be had about pointing out. Because there are some people in the shadow cabinet who have different views on that one penny off uh, the basic rate. John Ashworth was saying that they shouldn't support it, mm-hmm. for example. So there are there are contradictions in, at the top of the Labour Party on this. It's not, you know, they don't have a clear strategy on this at all.
1: I think one other one, you mentioned it to look out for is the windfall tax, because there's always been a sort of hidden windfall tax that they kept in place mm. that was raising, I think, about 28 billion over the next few years. It'd just be interesting to see whether there's some changes to that that mean it will raise more. Yeah. That's an obvious place to get more money. Yeah. yeah. Which they need.
0: Yeah, actually, that's one thing that they haven't brought in yet, but could be part of the fiscal statement.
1: W- one other thing, just quickly mentioned to go back to him, Ben Wallace has obviously threatened to resign if they don't increase defence spending as planned. Mm. So... That would be something that would definitely potentially precipitate a leadership contest. And it looks very likely that Hunt isn't going to increase defense spending.
0: Well, that's that's fireworks to look out for, isn't it? Because Ben Wallace has been very, very successful at keeping that commitment mm-hmm. in place, despite the, you know, parlous state of the public finances. I think it's something he spoke to you about at our Politics Live event, you know, quite a while back.
1: Thanks for reminding me.
0: Yeah. Do you remember he was calling for increased defence spending, you know, in, an, in a context where it was just like that seemed quite unlikely to happen for any other department. And yep. he actually managed to keep that promise in place. Yeah, amazing. OK, well, we'll look out for that. And actually, Harry, why don't you tell our listeners you're actually leaving the lobby team? So this is your last sort of <laughs> podcast appearance as, as a, a lobby, lobby correspondent, but you yeah. will be sticking with us. Do you want to tell our listeners a bit about what you'll be doing?
1: Absolutely. Yeah, I just, uh, yeah, there's too many coups for me. Uh, I can't keep <laughs> up. And I will be very much remaining with the NS as a contributing writer and, and writing regularly, doing a few more interviews, some longer pieces, and I'll be in the US for the midterms. But I will, I will stay up to date with the, uh, the Chancellor of the Month. As they arrive.
0: <laughs> okay. Well, we will keep having you on. Thank you. Yeah. If you if you want to come back.
1: And and can we encourage any women listening to send us a question? Yes. Because yes. this never happens. We
0: often well the majority of our questions from you ask us are from men, so we would love some women. Not to, that we don't appreciate the off. current questions. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Thank you. Thanks, Harry. Um, thank you. And thank you so much for listening. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Anusha Kellyan, and my colleague, Harry Lambert. We're produced by May Robson, and our music is Devil with the Devil, licensed under Creative Commons. Thanks so much for listening.
2: When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, That's stamps.com. Code program. Trust
0: in politics is broken, so can we get UK politics working again? That was the last time we were happy. 2012. I'm Beth Rigby, Sky's political editor. Join me every week with Labour's Jess Phillips and Conservative peer Ruth Davidson for some electoral dysfunction. This idea of nuance has completely left politics. Together, we'll focus on the policies that could deliver political satisfaction.
2: Follow Electoral Dysfunction wherever you get your podcasts.